From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome to China in the World podcast. Honored to be joined today by Tom Carruthers, Carnegie Senior Vice President, in charge of overseeing all of Carnegie's research, and the director of our Democracy and Rule of Law program. Tom is here in Beijing for our Carnegie Global Dialogue, focusing on Europe, and he's been discussing the populist movements and their effects on European politics and foreign policy. Tom is in his 25th year with the Carnegie Endowment, the longest tenured employee at the Carnegie Endowment currently. He was here before we had any Carnegie Global Centers, and he has seen us, witnessed us evolving into the global think tank we are today, with six centers in hotspots around the world. In fact, Tom was instrumental in opening most of those centers, and still today oversees our Europe Center in Brussels. It's worth noting that when Tom first joined Carnegie, he was the youngest senior research fellow to join. Quickly found, went on to found the Carnegie Democracy Rule of Law Program. As a leading international authority on international democracy and democratization, Tom, we're glad to have you in Beijing for the Carnegie Global Dialogue, and welcome to the China the World podcast. Paul, it's good to be here. You've been talking to Chinese scholars and other stakeholders this week about the changing political landscape in Europe、uh, and the impact of rising populism across Europe. And I wonder, do you see this as a Fundamental change、uh, is this something that Europeans will have to live with, and the world will have to live with, or is this a short-term phenomenon that we're dealing with? It's a deep change, and I think it's going to be a lasting change. It's fundamental in the sense that it reflects some big structural drivers in Europe. It's not fundamental in the sense that I don't think it's going to change European life in certain fundamental ways. I think most of Europe is going to remain democratic, and I think Europe is going to continue to have a Sort of a wide and rich political pluralism, but populism is is important and it's here to stay. And how, when you look at it, how do you define? What are the defining characteristics? How do you see populism in the European context? Populism is a it's one of those slippery terms that political scientists use that you sometimes feel like I I kind of know it when I see it, but I can't nail it down. <laughs> but one way to think about populism is it's a political movement or a set of political ideas. That is rooted in the idea of, of political outsiders challenging the established political set of actors,、mm. and it's outsiders who say that we are the legitimate voice of the people, and you insiders are a self-interested, usually corrupted elite that no longer represents the interests of the people.、Mm. So populism is rooted in the idea of the authentic voice of the people. Legitimacy, authenticity, and so with that often comes the sense of nationalism—that、mm-hmm. we are the authentic voice of the nation, which is represented by its people. And are there a set of issues that you find populism tends to gravitate towards? Populism is usually fueled by frustration or anger on the part of people, or fear,、mm-hmm. and so it usually gravitates towards issues that address anger, frustration, fear. So, on the one hand, economic issues, dislocation. Stagnation, lack of opportunity, and it feeds on the idea that what's with those people in power? Why can't they make your life better?、Yeah. They're probably cheating you. They're doing fine. How come you're not doing fine?、Mm. What's what's wrong with this system? So it plays on that.
And then secondly, it often plays on the fear that the society is being jeopardized by new forces. Who are all these strangers coming into our society, stepping ahead of you in line and getting those state benefits that you're not mm-hmm. getting? Uh, why should we treat immigrants so well when the average person in this country is struggling to make a living? So they're, they're feeding on economic fears. They're feeding on social fears. And then they may also be feeding on other kinds of social change. What's with this? Uh, all this favorable talk about lesbians and gays getting married and such? Mm. What happened to our country the way it used to be? Let's go back to a time when we had our feet on the ground and we knew right from right and wrong from wrong. And we're going to put this country back on its feet. Mm. So all of these kind of things uh, are typical issues that populists gravitate towards. And you've talked this week about how changing media landscape affects all of this. Can you describe that in the European context? It's a crucial part of it. Of course, populists have been around for, you know, uh, all of modern times in politics, so they don't have to have Twitter accounts, but it Mm. helps. Mm. Uh, What populists want to do is leap over obstacles to communicating directly to the people. They don't want to necessarily go on a national television and debate somebody. They want to speak directly to the people. They used to do that on the backs of trucks driving around the countryside. But now a populist leader can develop a Twitter account. They can develop uh, other forms of social media. They can create spaces on the Internet where they can activate their followers and so forth. So as we know, social media is a great leveler in certain ways and allows a tremendous amount of horizontal communication within Mm -hmm. a society. And that's what populists want. They want to overcome the verticality, the hierarchies, and reach directly to their mm-hmm. followers. So new technologies, it's funny, old populism, new technologies turn out to go very well together. And in Europe, I mean, you've described sort of the defining characteristics and the drivers, but you've been also talking this week to Chinese interlocutors about how populism varies throughout Europe. Mm. Often there's geographical elements to it. Can you talk about some of the differences that you see mm-hmm. among populist movements throughout Europe? One basic division that's crucial to keep in mind is that some populists really are rooted in the left, or they're rooted in ideas of economic redistribution. Based on that that economic anger that citizens have, they say, you know, it's those international banks that are cheating us. What if we nationalize those banks? Or uh, what's with these economic policies that, you know, give all these tax benefits to the rich? Let's give tax benefits to the poor for once and so forth. So sometimes it comes from a traditional redistribution impulse. Other times it, it has a more conservative social quality that comes tends to come more from the right, which is focuses on the anti-immigration or the anti-foreigners and says, you know, our country used to be pure and it used to be strong and now it's being diluted by all these people coming in from other places. And we ought to do something about that. Yeah. We ought to become more pure. So you have the left and the right and they, they're sometimes fused and that's why we talk about red-brown alliances in mm. traditional European political speak of putting together red from the left, brown from the right into single leaders. And so you have a fusion of both leftist and rightist impulses. And as you go around to different European political movements and try to analyze which elements are driving them the most, you find a different configuration with any particular party or leader. Hmm. And regionally, where in Europe do you mm-hmm. find populism the strongest? Populism is doing especially well in two parts of Europe. It's doing very well in Central Europe. Central Europeans came through the financial crisis feeling quite bruised and mm-hmm. damaged. Their democratic institutions were already fragile. There were a lot of corruption in these countries in most cases. 
um, traditional checks and balances uh, didn't weren't really there because of their communist or socialist legacy of, of authoritarianism. And so they were rather fragile countries politically. And when they mm-hmm. went through hard times economically, and when they begin to see the migration rising in Europe and immigration rising, which they haven't traditionally had, these are very isolated countries in sort of ethnic terms that have not traditionally had much immigration, at least in modern times, since the end of the two world wars, they really felt the winds of populism very strongly. Mm -hmm. And so you have Central European countries, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Czech Republic, all experiencing significant forms of populism. Southern Europe, too, has also had quite a bit. Italy, uh, Spain, in different ways, and Greece, and so mm-hmm. forth. So those are the two parts of Europe that have been most affected. Now, you mentioned Italy uh, just recently had an election, and close to 60% of the voters voted mm. for populist parties. Does this, what kind of trends does this indicate? Uh, it- yeah, the Italian election was a was a sign of the times that you have both a big populist movement, the five-star movement in Italy, kind of slightly unusual Italian-style populist with a colorful, somewhat odd leader who doesn't represent any traditional political uh, tendency, but lots of populist qualities. But then you also have some very right-of-center, very rightist, nativist parties, anti-immigration, that aren't necessarily purely populist. They're kind of straight conservative in certain ways, but they have some populist elements to them. So what's weakest in Italy right now are traditional centrist parties or center-left parties. They're really starving for political oxygen uh, because voters are very dissatisfied and are looking for these alternatives. And this sounds like obviously an issue we'll be grappling with for some time, but can you, can you lay out uh, some of the consequences that you've seen of these populist movements across Europe? There are a lot of consequences, and additionally, in Western Europe and Northern Europe, where populists are present but not dominant in the systems, but they've become established parties, often in parliaments like in Germany or in political life. So here are some of the main consequences. First, it changes the level of political anger in a country. Populists Mm -hmm. are angry. They feel that you're angry, the citizen, and they want to channel that anger into the Mm -hmm. system. So there's a level of anger that goes against, you know, post-World War II Europe was all about political consensus. Mm -hmm. Center-left, center-right, decency, getting along, agreeing on fundamentals. These populists don't agree on fundamentals. They want to challenge fundamentals. And so, particularly in Northern European countries that really rely heavily on consensus, this political conflict and hostility Mm -hmm. and anger is is a shock to the system. Netherlands, for example, we think of a country of Netherlands as just, you know, a calm, decent society. But the level of political anger in the Netherlands has been startling. Same in mm. Denmark, mm. a country we associate with a certain kind of equanimity of, yeah. of that. So one is political anger and conflict. Another is changing actual policies. Populists are pushing all mainstream parties to be more restrictive on immigration and migration. And so Europe is closing its borders. It's building mm. walls. It's closing borders. And it's not. It's trying to step back from the last 10 or 15 years of openness to immigration as a result of, of this populist wave. Third, we don't yet see that much effect on economic policies as much as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, as we don't see a big anti-trade uh, push by Europe. But there is nevertheless uh, a lot of questioning of basic economic policies. What about uh, the plight of the worker, the plight of the pensioner? Are we doing well by these people? And so in some countries, at least, there's more focus on social protection and what could be done, sometimes in fairly sort of rational 
positive ways economically, other times in kind of unthinking giveaways or lashing out at banks or other things that's not very positive as happened in Hungary, for example. So you have anger, you have changed immigration policies, you have start of some change of economic policies. These are some of the main consequences so far. Tom, as you describe populism in Europe, I can't help but think of Donald Trump and this last presidential election and what we saw play out. And the main four elements that you described, the economic piece, the immigration piece, the cultural changes that are taking place, and the new media and Twitter, Mm -hmm. of course, those all apply in American context. Where do you see the commonalities between Mm -hmm. what's happening in Europe, but also where do you see the differences? There are some profound commonalities. These structural drivers are really larger conditions of most Western economies and Western societies. So the United States and Europe certainly differ in a lot of ways, but in terms of struggling with the aftermath of the economic crisis, struggling with what's the right amount of immigration, adapting life to new social forms of communication and so forth, all of these things are common. And so the roots of populism are similar, but there are some important differences. Mm -hmm. The United States is locked into a two-party system, unlike European countries with Uh, parliamentary systems, it's very difficult in the United States for a third party to break in because of a sort of two-party basic rules of the game. And so populists in the United States don't form alternative parties. They grow up inside of existing parties. The Tea Party movement in the Republican Party was a populist revolution within the Republican Party itself. The Bernie Sanders movement in the Democratic Party in the 2016 primary process was a populist revolution within the Democratic Party. And so the struggle in the United States is populism within the established mm-hmm. parties, not populist parties outside the system. Mm-hmm. It's very different. And so it sort of wreaks havoc within the party. It does. So both parties are very divided now mm-hmm. in the United States between a more populist kind of wing and a more mainstream wing, and it's causing a great deal of tension within each of the parties. You know, we see it in the reaction of some of the Republican mainstream to the pushed by President Trump on trade sanctions, for example, or tariffs. We see reaction within the party saying, no, that's not us. That's that's populism. We're we're the party of business and sensible economic policies. What's this populist thrust within our own party? So the United States, it's different having it within the parties. Another difference is uh, we're a presidential system. Mm -hmm. The president has a lot of power in the United States. He's not just a prime minister. He's the president. Mm -hmm. Um, That gives a a level of visibility, a level of power. And both symbolic power and real power. And that, when you have a populist president, it's different than just having a populist party. You have a very, very visible symbol of populism. Mm-hmm. And, and Donald Trump radiates out his political style around the world, as we know. No European politician has anything like the global profile of an American president. And so when the American president is populist, that resounds loudly in the mm. world. You talked this morning to business leaders about some of the safeguards around populism getting too strong and overtaking the system. You talked about the importance of the judicial system and that the courts mm. talked about media. Can you describe some of the common elements within both Europe mm. and the United States that will lead potentially to limiting the, the, mm-hmm. the advancement of these populist movements? Well, populists are somewhat anti-systemic. The system is is rigged against us, they say. And so we need to break the boundaries of this system. And so they say, you know, we try to pass an immigration law that reflects the will of the people. And these courts tell us we can't do that. Who elected these courts? Who are they to tell the people 
what they can or can't do. I thought this was a democracy. So you have this deep tension in liberal democracy between the democracy side, the people's will, and the liberalism side, which is a set of rights and laws that, that organize the system. So this tension between the democracy side and the liberalism side manifests itself in any situation where you have a populist leader pushing for change. Mm -hmm. So courts are one form of check on the system. Um, the media is another scrutiny mm -hmm. and, you know, watching carefully what people do. I don't believe Donald Trump has had a normal press conference the entire time he's been president. He never sits down in front of a group of 40 or 50 journalists and has a wide-ranging conversation and answers hard questions yeah. because he doesn't want to subject himself to that kind of scrutiny. He wants to control the messages, choose the journalists with whom he talks. And so, and of course, he's constantly attacking the press, mm -hmm. saying they're liars and they're bad people, terrible people, he said, getting his followers to boo at them in rallies. You know, so he's turned on the press and said, this is a... This is a group of people who are not on the side of the people. They're bad people. So that's that's another... He sees, another he sees them as checks to his, his yeah. power, and so he he's does. pushing back, yeah. attacking them, trying yeah. to impact their credibility. Yes, So because he, it, you know, the free press is one of the greatest constraints on power that's really ever been created. The simple transparency of being able to ask what the leader is doing, ask hard questions, and get the truth about what's happening. So that's that's another constraint. And um, opposition parties, the ability of opposition parties to assert, you know, opposition in a rational way. And so, you know, when he uh, says that his former opponent in the presidential campaign should be locked up, he's denying the legitimacy of opposition. He's saying they're not just normal political opponents, they're criminals. Mm. These people are Crooked criminals. Crooked Hillary. Yeah. Crooked mm -hmm. Hillary. These are people who should be put in jail. They have no right to power. So you deny the legitimacy of opposition. And, and so if you... Deny the legitimacy of courts, deny the free press, deny the opposition. These are all ways in which you say, my power is, is kind of absolute mm. in a sense. It's something that shouldn't be questioned because it's authentic. It's, I am speaking for the people. And these constraints that you describe all exist in Europe. Are there differences in how mm. they're able to constrain populism? They are. Um, I mean... Every country has a different configuration. You saw in Italy, for example, in the 19, Italy experienced a wave of populism with Silvio Berlusconi in the 1990s. What were his strengths? Well, a media empire. He controlled a lot of the press in Italy. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the primary forms of his, his power was the fact that he controlled the media. What didn't he control? Uh, the courts in Italy. Italy actually has independent prosecutors, independent courts that are fairly strong. You remember all the anti-corruption trials in Italy and the the ability of Italian prosecutors to question politicians and that. So it was, you know, Italy had a captive media because of his media power. On the other hand, it had courts that were able to stand up in some ways. And they had some opposition, although he was able to fragment it and circumvent it. You could do a diagnosis of each European country. What are its strengths and weaknesses? And, you know, what is it? Uh, what is it able to control? We could talk about Brexit, for example, one configuration of a populist moment versus you know, another in Poland or Germany. Each one is a separate case, underlying structural drivers similar, but particular manifestations and constraints on it different in each European country. I can't let you get away with mm -hmm. the China and the World podcast without turning mm -hmm. our attention to China, mm -hmm. where we are here. And I wonder if you could comment on the impact of these populism movements in hmm. in Europe on Europe's relations with China and how you see that? I think in the first sense, Paul, that the Chinese 
you know, political establishment and also just, you know, well-informed Chinese looking at Europe and looking at the world. First of all, they see they see a bit of chaos and they see unfamiliarity and it's unsettling. Who are these people? What do they want? Is this bad for us? Good for us? You know, they're used to a Europe that's almost boring, you know, politically. <laughs> that's kind of, you know, goes from the center right to the center left and quite a bit of consensus. So they're, the first is it's just an unsettling time mm. for Chinese trying to think about how to deal with Europe. Secondly, they see fright fragmentation. They see some countries going down very unexpected in different directions and others not. Macron and France are, seem to be moving right up the center alley of politics, yet then another country like Italy seems to be in a just completely unstable and fragmented state. So they're, again, used to dealing with Europe as a, as a region, you know, China and Europe. But what if Europe is multiple Europes? Then what does that mean? It, that, that requires a more differentiated focus and some new thinking. Third, populists are often nationalistic, anti-globalization. Hmm. China benefits from globalization. China is a major engine of globalization in the world. What does it mean for China to live in a world where the West, which is traditionally the driver of globalization, becomes often opposed to globalization? So these are all big questions for China. The good news for China so far is that populists in Europe have not focus their negative energies on China very much. Right. Yeah, they've been focusing it on Brussels and the European Union, on established politicians. If anything, they sometimes point to China and to Russia and other powers outside the region, non-traditional powers, and say, look, we have other friends that we could call in and we can make a deal to build a new railroad with China. We don't need structural funds from Brussels. And so China has actually been relatively uh, gotten kind of a free pass, I would say, from populists in Europe so far. Well, Tom, thank you very much for joining the China in the World podcast, but more importantly for visiting us here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. You've been a leader in the Carnegie Endowment, the global institution, uh, and uh, we're delighted to have you come visit, and we hope this is the first of many. Well, what the Carnegie Tsinghua Center is doing under your leadership, Paul, is a perfect example of what we'd like to do everywhere, so it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China in the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.